University professors spend a lot of time talking about a lot of things with each other at academic conferences and in academic journals. The problem with that is you don't go to academic conferences and you don't read academic journals, and I want to talk to you. Some of the most interesting thoughts in America about popular culture never get to be heard by people outside of the walls of academia, so I'm on a mission to bring those thoughts to you. Fabulous people, interesting ideas, brilliant conversations. I'm Dr. Christopher Bell, and this is a hard hat area. You're on with the Deconstruction Workers. Thank you for joining us again for another episode of the Deconstruction Workers. My name is Dr. Christopher Bell, and today's Deconstruction Worker here with me is Dr. Lauren Kamachi. She is out in beautiful, sunny Pennsylvania. Good morning, Lauren. Morning. How are you? I am doing quite well. I just was working on a syllabus, and I'm glad to be taking a break to talk some deconstruction. So today we're going to be getting into the first of what I anticipate to be many episodes about Harry Potter. And today, one thing I want to do is sort of lay out for people who are not academics, or even for those who are but are outside of our field, I should point out both Lauren and I are rhetoricians. Yes. Academically, that's what we do. Which, we, you and I should probably do a whole episode just about rhetoric. Probably. That'd be super interesting. I don't think anybody knows what it is we actually do. Not outside our field. No, and the reason I say that is because every time I go home and I say it to my brother, you know, I'm doing this in rhetoric, he always says, so what, you just ask questions nobody can answer? Either that or you get people who only know the term from the news when they hear, oh, well, it's not actual science and facts, it's just rhetoric. It's just rhetoric, <laughs> exactly. And then I go cry yes, in the and, corner. Yes, and, and Aristotle rolls in his grave. But outside of our academic enclave, I don't know that anybody really understands what kind of impact Harry Potter has had on the academic world. I'm sure lots of listeners are really big fans of Harry Potter. That's probably part of the reason why they've downloaded this particular episode. But I think there's been this profound impact across disciplines in the university by Harry Potter. So much so that there has been an ever-growing group of scholars in a variety of fields, everything from history to us in rhetoric to musicologists and chemists and religious studies and all across the university using Harry Potter to deal with issues in the real world. Uh, that group has been called Harry Potter Studies. That's our formal name. We are an organization that works out of the Southwest Popular and American Culture Association. And it's been a really fantastic group of people to be a part of. It really has. I think the work that has been produced has been interesting and it's all over the board. And so today I wanted to talk a little bit about sort of how we came to be a group, how Harry Potter Studies came to exist, and then talk through some major kinds of things that Harry Potter Studies scholars are dealing with. Because I came in in, what, the third of the conferences? Or I, think the you're, I think you've been here since the second. Okay, so obviously you're going to need to get the story started, but then I can pitch in once we get to year two. 
So Harry Potter studies started because I had gone to several popular culture association conferences and noticed that lots and lots of popular culture properties had their own areas where groups of scholars were getting together. So everything from Buffy the Vampire Slayer to Star Wars, the Grateful Dead, professional wrestling, all of these popular culture properties had their own groups where just people focused on the study of that artifact got to get together and talk. Right. So instead of it being in the art and literature division and it's all kinds of different artifacts, instead the division is about the artifact and then people apply their different methods therein. So Harry Potter did not have one of these. And I went to the chair of the Popular Culture Association and I said, hey, Harry Potter should have its own division. What do you think about that? And very politely, he said, you're a doctoral student and no. <laughs> so <laughs> I was sad. So then the next year I went to Southwest Popular Culture Association and I said, look, Nationals has turned me down for starting this area, but I really think there's enough people who would like to study Harry Potter that we could make our own area. And the chair at the time said, you're a doctoral student, so no, but what I'll let you do is I will let you this year start a special topic. So this year, we'll give it a trial, and you can do a special topic for one year. So I did. I, I put together a call for papers, and I sent it out to everyone. And in that first year, we got something like 22 or 23 papers, which was pretty big, especially for a first-time special topic. Right, because... So for if any of the listeners aren't familiar with how these conferences work, this one in particular, it's panels. So one and a half hour panels of three scholars who each present about a 15 minute paper and then there's question and answer. So 22 participants, that's at least two days worth of papers. I believe we were able to put together something like seven panels, yeah. which is great across a conference. So the second year, I got an email from the chair of programming who said, are you coming back as chair of Harry Potter studies? And I kind of... Well, if you're asking. Right. I kind of looked uh, sideways for a moment and then I was like, yes, I am. So I pulled together another call for papers and I sent it out. And a lot of the same people applied the second year. But a bunch of new people also applied, and the second year, I think we did maybe 30 papers. It was really big the second year. It was big, and they knew we'd be big because they gave us a lot of the presentation rooms that we had were the big rooms, and we filled them. Not only did we have, you know, 30 papers, 30-some-odd papers, but each one of our presentations had... 40 people show up, 50 people show up, which for a conference, if you can get 40 people to show up to an 8 a.m. panel, you're something people want to talk about. Right. And depending on the conference and depending on the panel, sometimes you can be lucky to get You can four. be lucky to get the four people who are on the panel to show up. Right. And and it's whether it's a good measure or not, a lot of conference uh, organizers will measure the success of a division by how many visitors to the panel it attracts. This is an ongoing issue that I have with the way academic publishing and the way academic knowledge sharing works in the first place, which is 
you go to these academic conferences to quote unquote present research, but then nobody shows up at the panels anyway. And so you're talking to three other people who also showed up to present research to nobody. Our panels were not like that. Our panels were full of lots of people, most of whom were not presenting most of whom had showed up to actually hear what was being said and to engage in the conversation. I think if I'm not mistaken, the conference organizer, now you could speak to this better than I can, but I suspect that the conference organizers were a little surprised that it had such a strong start out of the gate, the Harry Potter Studies Division at Southwest. But I don't think any of us who were involved in the area itself were surprised because Harry Potter itself, the fandom is so diverse it didn't really surprise us that that many people from such diverse backgrounds, like, oh, well, I've only seen the movies once, but I loved them. Or I've read the books every year since they came out. I don't think any of us were surprised at all. There were so many different kinds of people who showed up. Like you said, the fan base is so diverse. So is the scholarship base. Yes. Harry Potter has been able to be used in so many different kinds of contexts that it really wasn't a surprise to me at all that that many people wanted to show up to talk about it. And this was the thing I had been trying to convince them for two years was, let me run with this and people will show up. I promise. Was this 2015 or 2014? Oh, this would have been 2013, actually. 13. So 2014 was the first. Okay, so the reason I ask that is that if we think about it, the last book came out in 2007. The fact that it took that much longer for conference organizers to get behind the idea of a division is kind of, I think you're right, it's a little surprising that it wasn't more of a, well, duh. Right. Because scholars have been writing about Harry Potter since the first book came out, whether it was reviews by the culture and literature people in newspapers or whether it was actual scholarly publications. One of my professors, when he moved back to, he was visiting one semester, moved back home, was digging through his files because he knew I liked Harry Potter and remembered one time in a political science journal reading a white paper about the political structure of the government in Harry Potter. So he fished it out and sent it to me. It's old. The first articles that I've been able to find in my own research were coming out. The book came out in 97. We were starting mm -hmm. to get hardcore research articles all the way back in 1998, right when it very first came out. So there are scholars who have been working on Harry Potter alongside the development of the narrative since the very, very beginning. Right. So it makes me sort of curious how it took so long. I'm glad that it did because then people like you and I have been able to not only be involved in it, but sort of shape the direction of it. Right. But yeah, it is a little curious. I do think that, and this is something we've discussed at the conference before, I think that our peers in Tolkien studies and other fandom like that are instructive on how it took so long because it's not like people weren't talking about the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit in scholarly venues before they blew up. Right. But eventually they blew up and eventually the Academy, you can be a Tolkien scholar now and no one looks sideways at you and says, well, what are you wasting your time on that for? You can get tenure as a Tolkien scholar now. Well, this is where Henry Jenkins becomes really useful. There's a guy, his name is, is Dr. Henry Jenkins. He works out of the University of Southern California and he spent a lot of time over the course of the last probably 20 years talking about how the very study of popular culture in and of itself has always been 
weirdly divorced from fandom within popular culture. That is, people who have studied popular culture in the past have taken this really anthropological, ethnographic view of popular culture, sort of outsiders coming in to study the natives. We are here today studying the Trekkies in their natural environment. Right. And so because of that, there's been this very natural and very understandable barrier that has been thrown up between fans and academics, and it's entirely the fault of academics. Right. And so over the last 20 years, what Jenkins has really pushed is embedded scholarship. Scholarship being done by people from within the community, taking fandoms and turning them into academic study rather than the other way around. Right. So I love a thing. I love Harry Potter. I love Star Wars. I love superheroes. I love Transformers. I love whatever. Mm -hmm. Taking that and then saying, but I'm also a scholar, so why on earth, with all this fan knowledge that I have of this thing, why wouldn't I necessarily marry that with my research skills, methodology, and knowledge base and turn that into actual study of popular culture? Right. He refers to this as Aka fandom, which to me feels very pitch perfect, but yes, it does. <laughs> he refers to it as Aka fandom. That is, we are academics, but we are also fans. I don't think 20 years ago, you could have gotten away with saying you're a Harry Potter scholar. No. People would have looked at you like you're a crazy person. You, you're you not a Harry Potter scholar. You're a sociologist who happens to read Harry Potter. And mm -hmm. if you want to study Harry Potter, you would have to study Harry Potter as a sociologist or as a psychologist or as a literature professor or as a communication scholar. You could not study it in and of itself as its own phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the thing that's really changed. Changing. I don't know if we can say changed. I think changing because it depends a lot on your field, on your university, depends on where, how far along you are in your academic journey. I think that, for example, your experience as someone who is, congratulations, now tenured. Oh, uh, thank you. Versus my experience as someone who, um, in our field, to get a job, you have to have publications. I've got four publications, but I've not, you know, I'll be frank, I've not been getting as many callbacks as some of my colleagues who have three, but they're not about popular culture. They're not about Harry Potter. Right. They're about more traditional in our field, the it's speeches. You study the great speeches. That's the most traditional version of rhetorical studies. And it seems that even though I have twice as many publications as some people, because it's on a perhaps avant-garde subject, at my stage in my career, it seems so far to not be an asset. That hasn't discouraged me from doing it, but... This is one of the ongoing struggles and one of the reasons why this podcast exists in the first place. Only in academia would the study of of the most popular work of fiction in the history of mankind, the only book translated into more languages than the Harry Potter series is the Bible. Bible. And only in academia would someone say focused study of that is somehow avant-garde. Yeah. I think we continue as a field, I don't mean rhetoric as a field, I mean academia as a field, 
continue to fall further and further out of touch, out of step, out of line with what's important in society. And I had to go through this a lot when I was doing my dissertation work. I really struggled to find professors who would even serve on my dissertation committee because I wanted to write my dissertation about American Idol. And mm -hmm. I was told that that would make my dissertation frivolous. Mm -hmm. Our popular culture has such a profound impact on who we are as a people that someone ought to be standing at the door trying to frisk who wants to come in. And that's me. And I am at a point in my career where I'm proud to say that's what I do. I'm a cultural mechanic. I go under the hood and find out what makes it tick and try mm -hmm. to fix the problems that we have because the problems are significant. I am continually astounded that more scholars don't see the value in that. I agree. It's a hard place to be. But that said, we have found this group of like-minded friends who want to do this thing with us. And it has been such an enjoyable and rewarding experience. And I think we have come out of every year of the conference, not only with true scholarship in terms of publications, we have published several books now. We are currently in the process of publishing the fifth and sixth volumes of scholarship, both of which at the time of this recording are in press, which for those of you who are outside of academia means the publisher has them and is working on putting the books together, setting the type and doing the editing and proofreading and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So we're in the process of publishing our fifth and sixth books of scholarship. So we've done a lot of really great work there, but we've done a lot of really great work as a group in sort of establishing Harry Potter studies as a thing, a as an actual legitimate object of study. And area of scholarly inquiry. Right. And, you know, the thing I, f I find so ironic about the fight for legitimization across multiple fields of Harry Potter studies is the Academy, there's certain buzzwords that the Academy really is a big fan of right now. Things like digital rhetoric and things like interdisciplinarity. Right. We're one of those divisions. We don't have to force it. We're not trying to do that. We are that. And it seems that should be worthy of an enthusiastic huzzah because we, you know it's we're studying something that's doing the very thing that the rest of the academy is hopefully eventually going to be doing too. I mean, how many times in the course of the academic year are you told, "Oh, you should reach out and collaborate with this department or that department or X field or whatever." And it's done in this sort of begrudging well, I guess those people over there, we should probably try to talk to them at some point. And every year in Harry Potter studies, we have people from dozens of different disciplines who all show up in the spirit of collaboration without having been directed that that's what they're supposed to do. Right. You just get into a conversation about this object that you love, realize you both have something smart to say about it, and it turns out your fields are able to discuss it productively together between the two of you. Right. I mean, some of my favorite stories are our colleagues, Amy and Talanda, happened to sit next to each other at dinner one night, got to talking, planned out a whole paper, and then realized, oh, you know, I've never introduced myself. And turns out Amy is an art historian, Talanda is a librarian, and they probably would have never had an opportunity to collaborate if it wasn't for Harry Potter. Right. 
And we have colleagues, our colleague Katie ended up getting into a conversation with one of the psychology, she's a historian. She started talking with a psychologist about, a clinical psychologist about Harry Potter. They decided to do a paper. But those sorts of connections so rarely happen when a non-popular culture artifact is what's on the table. Well, and this is one of the larger rationales for the study of popular culture in and of itself is that popular culture is the, it's the bridge that crosses the divide of our society in general. I have a friend who I've known since high school. We have taken wildly divergent paths and ended up as not just politically differentiated, but as literal political opponents. Hmm. Everything he is for, I am against. Everything I am for, he is against. (laughs) We have become political opposites. And yet, we can talk about basketball. Because basketball is the thing that brings us together. You don't have to be a, a Republican or a Democrat or a liberal or a conservative or whatever stupid, meaningless term you want to put on people's political affiliations. You're just two people who happen to like basketball and it's a thing you can talk about. Right. Popular culture is the thing that brings us together. It's, in many ways, the universal language of our society. And I think the same thing is true in terms of scholarship and academics and disciplines. It's the, it's the bridge. Harry Potter can be the bridge that brings our disparate disciplines together. And I think that's so important as, I know it sounds cliche to say it, but as the world continues to change, and especially the humanities in the academy are feeling some pressure about their very existence, it's kind of an adapt or die situation, right? To to continue digging your heels in to say only the study of the great orders is what matters, that's not going to last you very long. Oh, I would absolutely agree. So I think the point that I'm trying to make here, sort of wrapping up this ever-expanding segment, is the study of popular culture matters. And because the study of popular culture matters, focusing in on a massive major cultural phenomenon like Harry Potter makes sense. And it doesn't always get the respect or the acknowledgement of legitimacy that it deserves within the university community. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. And and at the you know, and get over it. And and, <laughs> yeah. al- and also not just get over it, but get over yourselves as well. <laughs> or you need to be that or cool. you need to be that or you need to be <laughs> much cooler than you actually are. One or the other, yes. That said, let's talk a little bit about... Well, let's preface this all by saying that Harry Potter Studies, this academic group that we've been carefully forming and trying to expand over the course of the past five or so years, it's not the be-all, end-all. There are a ton of other scholars across the globe that are working on these phenomena, and we're trying to slowly reach out to all these. Not slowly, we're purposely going slow. Slowly, we are finding as we realize there's more and more people, we keep saying, hi, join us. Come, let's all talk together. Right. So we are not, it's not like you're going to Google Harry Potter studies and you're going to find the eight of us who run 
the division out of Southwest popular culture. But we hope that will happen one day because we want everybody to be talking together. We've talked about trying to get a library together of all of our, to aggregate all of the different articles that exist and books that exist. Because the, the trouble with the Academy is, unfortunately, a lot of people end up saying the same thing, but because they don't know to be looking here or there, they don't realize that they're just ships passing when really they should be on the same ship. Come be one of us. You don't have to work alone in the dark under, yes. you know, the cover of, of your blankets with a flashlight in secret. Come out into the open and be with us. We want yes. you. And we're a place that accepts that what you're doing is legitimate. And the other thing I like about um, what, we're, what we're working on and the sorts of uh, opportunities that studying Harry Potter has opened to folks is that at our sister conference in Chestnut Hill College, Philadelphia, the conference registration is $10, is is only $10, and the public, non-academics are encouraged to submit paper ideas and present papers. That is huge. Huge. Huge, because academic conferences are freaking expensive. There's just no other way to put it. They are costly, and a lot of people decide they can't go. Even academics decide they can't go because they don't have the budget to fly out to, for example, to Southwest, to fly out from Pittsburgh to Albuquerque and stay at the conference. I make it my, that's my priority. I'd rather blow off one of the conferences in my immediate field to come to that, but it's inaccessible to a lot of people. Other conferences, smaller conferences, really small conferences, Chestnut Hill is probably 200 people, maybe 300 which for a conference is pretty small, but the fact that a good third of the presenters are members of the Philadelphia community is extremely impressive and demonstrates just how diverse the field is and just how accessible this artifact is to people who have good ideas. The fact that Harry Potter studies necessarily embraces the idea of knowledge democracy says everything about the nature of the artifact itself. Right, because the heroes of the book aren't Professor Bin who sits there and drones on at you and lectures from his pulpit every day. The, the kids are the heroes, right? The people who go out and create that knowledge from themselves, not just those who are saying, here's what the establishment says I should tell you about X, Y, Z. That's another part and parcel of academia is we have the knowledge. We're the ones who know stuff. That's what you pay us to do. And you don't think deeply about anything, which is patently ridiculous and demonstrably false, especially when it comes to fandom. Right. And is resulting in real world, large scale problems in terms of people being willing to engage with one another in a respectful way about anything right now. About literally anything. Literally anything. And it also is this idea that somehow focused study of a thing makes you less qualified to talk about it. This seems to be the new vibe yeah. where if you spend a lot of time studying a thing, people will call you professorial and they'll use that as an insult. And then they'll say, you don't actually know anything, which is the most oxymoronic thing I can think of. Yes, expertise is now a detriment, which is odd. So what what kinds of issues, what kinds of real world issues are we using Harry Potter to deal with, to think deeply about? So the, the first thing, you know, you would think that my own work might have popped into my head first, but it didn't. Um, Mine either, which is interesting, yeah. 
the one thing I wanted to talk about was the group of Italian communication science and sociological and anthropological researchers under Loris Vizzoli. They've worked on using Harry Potter as the intervention, the measure, to see how children change or maintain how they understand tolerance of people. I think the two groups they were measuring were people who are not straight, so anybody who might be gay or might have a different sexuality, and also then immigrants. And their study where they had uh, some groups of kids read Harry Potter, they did the pre-test measure, they did a post-test measure after Harry Potter, some kids didn't read Harry Potter. And for the, the children who had the Harry Potter intervention and who felt they identified with one of the heroic characters, so there's always going to be that kid. I think I always picture a one of my friends from high school who was just obsessed with Draco Malfoy. So this wouldn't have worked. This measure proved it did not work when it was Draco, who you saw as the best person in the series. But if you identified with Harry, Hermione, McGonagall, any of the heroes, they measured a statistically significant increase in young children's toleration and acceptance of people who had different identity markers than they had, hmm. which is pretty darn cool. I wonder how much of Harry Potter fandom is sort of directly related to the fact that it doesn't really matter who you are. You can sort of imaginarily insert yourself into the Harry Potter world and find a place for yourself. Yeah. I think that our colleagues and friends who study things like headcanon, which is the the world you've as you engage a popular culture text, how do you, so for example, my head canon Ron doesn't look a thing like Rupert Grint right. and never will. I love Rupert Grint, but it will not. And I know you differ uh, <laughs> from me on that, but yes. um, so head canon, how you imagine the world as you engage with it on your own. My, my head canon Hermione, who has always had brown skin, for example. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I think that that's a pretty good example of how the text affects people externally. And what I mean by that is people read the work and then it has an impact on how they live their lives. Right. I'm also really interested in some of the work we've done internally to the text as well. Mm -hmm. Things that are happening inside of the story that then serve as markers or allegories about the real world. Mm. Well, you must be thinking of Elizabeth's work then. It's worth talking about hers because to my own experience, so the Chestnut Hill College Conference has a high school section and every year, every year, there is an essay from a high school student. These essays are darn good. Yes. But there's every year there's an essay up from a high school student about the connections they see between the Voldemort regime in the end of the sixth into the seventh books and Nazi Germany. Right. And we have a colleague who has used Harry Potter to work through the anti Semite Nazi propaganda and how did his how did this happen? Those sorts of things with her World War II history classes. She's an Eastern European scholar, and by that I mean she's a scholar who studies Eastern Europe. She's actually from Kansas, I think. Um, <laughs> but she's a scholar of Eastern European history who sort of talks through how a society could end up that way and uses Harry Potter as a, as a very interesting model. Mm -hmm. Much in the same way that I have used Harry Potter in my own work to talk about Voldemort and how Voldemort is a villain, but Voldemort is also a victim. And mm -hmm. the 
natural conclusion of a really dystopic society. Mm-hmm. Dystopia being when societies are broken, when massive inequalities exist, when there are still practices like slavery, when there's a rigid caste system, which there is in Harry Potter, uh, in right. terms of bloodline and who's a pure blood and who's not, which then leads to widespread racism or the Wizarding World version of racism, which is calling people mudblood. Mm-hmm. And then you literally, from the time they are 11 years old, you give every single member of your society a deadly weapon that they get to carry around with them at all times. <laughs> My question is often not how come Voldemort becomes a mass murderer, but why does it take him so long? Right. Why is it only once a generation that you get someone like that? In a society that is that polarized polarized and that broken, that mm-hmm. dystopic, why did it take so long to have a Voldemort-type character? And for folks who are listening who are interested in Harry Potter but aren't maybe as obsessively familiar with the story as we are because we study it all the time, right? You might be saying, but no, John Williams, there's, there's Christmas bells, jingle bells in the, in the score. It's a wonderful, lovely world. <laughs> right. Okay, yes, in some ways it does seem like a wonderful, lovely world because it's not our world. But if you look carefully, I mean, of course, the seventh book is the most obvious of these. But if you look carefully from the beginning, especially at Ron's dialogue, because he's the character of the main trio of Harry, Ron, and Hermione, who is born and bred of the system that Harry and Hermione both enter as basically afresh when they're 11 years old. If you take a look at his dialogue, there's a lot of what, if you read it within the context of the story, is basically casual racism. Lots of arguments by tradition. Well, it's we, we just don't do it that way. That could help you see what we're talking about here. Also, if you look at the fact that everyone within that world, even someone like Hagrid, who lives on the margins of society as it is, is very much in defense of the blatant slavery that happens within that society. House elves mm-hmm. are slaves. Not only are they slaves, but they play into this vast lineage of the sort of happy slave narrative, which you don't really have access to if you're white and British and upper middle class, but which you absolutely have access to if you're a black American man, as I am. It's very clear to understand you're playing a happy slave narrative here. The slaves are very content with being slaves and are actively working against this white lady who's trying to free them. Mm -hmm. It's incredibly problematic. But that said, it's emblematic of how disparate the society is. Mm-hmm. particularly in terms of wealth. Malfoy looks down on Ron and his family because they don't have a house elf. They're purebloods, but they can't even afford a house elf, which is... Which is more reflective of the traditional British caste system than the wizarding one. But it also very much smacks of, how are you going to own a plantation and you don't have any slaves? Mm. That's one of the reasons why we call the Wizarding World a dystopia. And in a dystopia, if you bring an individual into that society who has every legitimate reason, and this is really important to remember, 
If you go back to book six to the Half-Blood Prince and you carefully read Tom Riddle's backstory. And you got to read it because if you're watching just the movies, they took most of these important backstories out. If you're entering into this text having only seen the movies, you probably right now have no idea what I'm talking about. And think Chris is insane for trying to explain how Voldemort became Voldemort. So if you go into book six, even if you've never read the book, go get your hands on book six and just read the chapters where you get Voldemort's backstory, where you get Tom Riddle's story. When you read Tom Riddle's story, it becomes very clear that Lord Voldemort is absolutely responsible for every single thing he does. He is a murderer and he is responsible for being a murderer. But if you read Tom Riddle's backstory, you very quickly understand Tom Riddle is a victim 100% of the time. That kid is bred into becoming a mass murderer. And at every stage of his development, there are giant red flags that everyone around him purposefully ignores. And that's like kind of the theme of those in the positions of authority throughout the series. It's that meme of the dog sitting in the burning house going, it's, it's, it's fine. fine. Everything's fine. It's also the idea that mentorship, outreach, a teacher, an older person, a counselor, a friend, anyone who is in some sort of position of authority to be able to reach out to a kid who is clearly struggling, who has become a bully, who has emotional problems, who may sometime lash out legitimately against the people around them, to reach out to them can change the course of their life. As we see with Dumbledore and Harry, everything that Dumbledore does for Harry, he explicitly does not do for Tom Riddle, which makes Dumbledore the hinge for me in right. the story. It makes him both the creator of the hero and also the creator of the villain. He is not just a good guy. Dumbledore is a very bad guy in a lot of ways for a lot of reasons. Mm -hmm. What'd you say about Dumbledore? Yeah. It's like I smacked your it's like I smacked your mama in the face. Before you get defensive, <laughs> you know, before the listener who's like, but I love Dumbledore. And that's a little sidebar on what we're talking about here. That when you study something, you know, you have to be willing to be critical of it. If you're here just for the rah-rah, everything about Harry Potter's wonderful conversation, that's maybe this isn't the place for that. I mean, one of the best ways to show that you legitimately love something is to try and figure it out and work with it and see where it's excellent, see where it needs work. I mean, when you love a popular culture artifact as much as we tend to love Harry Potter, you have to be willing to say, here's what's wrong with it. Sure. It's one thing to be a fan. It's another thing to be a critically thinking fan, which is sort of the divide between fandom and Akka fandom. So Dumbledore is not always a good guy. Dumbledore has many flaws, many bad qualities. Someday I'd be happy to do a whole episode just on Dumbledore. But other things you'd like to talk about. One of our contributors to Southwest this past year, the complicated authorship relationship when you think about Warner Brothers and Rowling. Oh, you are talking about our friend from France. I am. Agatha, right? Yeah, Agatha. So number one, Agatha, if you're listening, shout out. Hello in Paris. She's at the Sorbonne, just being wickedly brilliant. I really hope she joins us again this year. But she did. She came out from France to talk to us about the way in which the fact that Warner Brothers 
Brothers has taken over Harry Potter as a franchise, as a popular culture property, has really influenced the way that things are being produced around Harry Potter in general. The part that she really talks about is Pottermore. So Pottermore is this website, if you're listening this deep into this episode, you probably know what Pottermore is, but Pottermore is this website that used to be a place where you could go and unlock through playing some games or performing different tasks. You could unlock new stories, new backstories, history stories about Harry Potter and about the Harry Potter universe and the characters in it. And you used to be able to go and get sorted into a house and figure out what your Patronus is and all this stuff. Harry Potter related stuff. And it was started by JK Rowling and sort of operated with this very small group of people who were in charge of the content. And somehow over the course of the last five years, five or so years, all of those people have been muscled out and in its place has been Warner Brothers using Pottermore as a way to release content that then sets them up to be able to sell different kinds of Harry Potter stuff based on the new content that has been created. So it's a lot less about service to the fans and a lot more about becoming just one more venue for Warner Brothers to shill merchandise at the fan base. Yeah, so where before Pottermore was a place where, you know, you play the different games and your prize is to see a picture file of Rowling's notes on a napkin about chapter six in the first book. Like that was really for we big time nerds, that was really fun stuff. Now it's a genealogical history of the Potter family. Stuff that was never in the original books, but is now expanding the world to then you might want to, oh, well, get your wizarding genealogy here, things like that. Which then for us as both Harry Potter scholars, but for the two of us pretty specifically as rhetoricians because of the way that we have been taught to think about text, it creates a problem in that we have to always read that on Pottermore and then say, does this count? Or in what way does this count? Or is this in some way real or whatever? Do we then go back after you've read this thing on Pottermore? Do you then go back and reread Harry Potter? Dumbledore is gay. Okay, do you now go back and read the series different because you know that now? Is that something you even can let go of when you go in? Well, even better, do you even know that that's true at all? Is Dumbledore now gay because Rowling said it in an interview or is it not true because she never explicitly wrote it into the books and she said she hinted at it but i mean Hint, hinting at something it doesn't count if you didn't write explicitly something that reveals to us that dumbledore is in fact gay my question is does that mean that he's not or should we just accept what rolling says just because she randomly happens to say it and at the conference this has brought up the question of is this a sort of false advocacy move where you claim someone with some sort of perhaps non-normative or non-mainstreamed identity marker but you don't actually take any pains to have that character be that to show that identity in the text and then you oh well no Dumbledore's gay oh oh Harry Potter's so accepting of gay people look at all the gay people what oh he's super gay can't you see it no. i mean i didn't say it but i hinted at it he wore a purple suit in one flashback scene 
Right. Uh-huh. Uh, we, we keep referring to Grindelwald as his special friend, <laughs> which always reminds me of the episode of Glee where Blaine and Kurt are having a Christmas. They're doing the Christmas special. And then Blaine keeps referring to Kurt as his best friend and holiday roommate. Holiday <laughs> roommate. Um, but they're both very sort of openly gay. So yes. I, th- I think it's really funny. It happens. This is my special friend. And we're supposed to take that as, oh, clearly she wrote Dumbledore is gay, which clearly she did not. Mm-hmm. So Harry Potter studies. In conclusion, what? In conclusion, what? Harry Potter studies needs to be a thing in a world where popular culture is the thing that bridges gaps and in a world in which Harry Potter is the single largest phenomenon of popular culture in at least a generation, it would be very stupid not to be paying attention to it and studying it. I would come down in conclusion in much the same way. I think it is the cultural touchstone for at least the decades encompassing the 2000s. I think it is the thing that defines us popular culturally, even in America, which is hilarious because it's so very British. (laughs) But I think in the end, the study of Harry Potter is really not about the study of Harry Potter. The study of Harry Potter is about the study of society and what society looks like and what society could look like and what society maybe shouldn't look like. And a practice in the ways the Academy can continue to grow and become and remain socially relevant. A way in which we can use this popular culture text to maybe solve some of the problems we have in the real world by metaphor, Mm -hmm. which I think has always, if you look back throughout history, has always been a valuable tool. I think it's why we tell stories in the first place. Yeah. You tell the story of the monster that lives in the woods so your kids don't wander out of the tent at night into the woods and get eaten by a bear, for example. The monster doesn't live in the woods anymore, but there are still monsters out there, and the stories we tell still help prepare us to deal with those monsters. Yeah. So, for Dr. Lauren Kamachi, I am Dr. Christopher Bell. We have been the Deconstruction Workers, and we will talk to you next time. The Deconstruction Workers podcast is produced and directed by me, Dr. Christopher Bell. If you like what you hear, the best thing you can do for the podcast is give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Feel free to check out thedeconstructionworkers.com, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thedeconstructionworkers, or Twitter at podcastdcw. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can donate as little as a dollar a month towards keeping the lights on at www.patreon.com slash podcastdcw. The Deconstruction Workers is recorded on the beautiful University of Colorado, Colorado Springs campus, 6,033 feet above sea level. The theme song for The Deconstruction Workers was composed by Raphael Crux. As always, please support alternative scholarship and public engagement. The Deconstruction Workers is copyright 2018, all rights reserved.